Hello and welcome back to I've Never Read This World with me, PJ Hart, and my co-host, Andy Luke. Say hi, Andy. Hello. So for those regular listeners, you may have noticed we took a little bit of a break over the summer after book 10, and we are both hopefully well-rested, recharged. Did you have a nice summer holiday, Andy? It was a great idea. It's your idea, PJ. It was. Um, It made me a bit more lucid about um reaper man which we'll be discussing tonight because I, I think it's it's scheduling once a month can be a bit um it's a lot it's a lot to read mm, i find it yeah. a lot to read personally um not just because i'm lazy and easily distracted but also because of those things um uh, you know kids life work etc uh, you've been yeah. busy with other projects Andy. i know that doing some other radio stuff cheating on me with your mm. your uh, radio drama friends I've been off working on a little thing for Radio 4 that I can't talk about just yet, but hopefully we'll get to mention in a couple of months. So anyway, other projects aside, we're back in the hot seat now for book number 11, which is... Reaper Man. So we're back back with death, one would assume. Yes, RM, Reaper Man, and we are Irish. So the Irish RM. Little joke for you fans of 1970s sitcoms. Oh, that's, yeah, over my head. Sorry. Apologies, listeners and Andy. Uh, yeah. So give, give me your, give me your, your dates. Give me the dates. Um, this was, I think this was published in, well, Michael Arndt's edition is 1991. Death is missing, presumed uh, gone, which leads to the kind of chaos you always get when an important public service is withdrawn. Meanwhile, on a little farm far, far away, a tall, dark stranger is turning out to be really good with a scythe. There's a harvest to be gathered in. If you're an established fan, you'll enjoy this as much as the others. If you're new to Pratchett, what the hell took you so long? Why, thank you, time out. There we go. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend starting with this one, I don't think. Time out magazine, but okay, if you say so. Uh... Yeah, cool. Good, good blurb. Can we talk about uh, the cover art, which we usually leave to the end and, and try to not talk about? But I think this is Josh Kirby's finest effort to date. It's really clean. It's it's just really simple. Um, it's a lovely piece of art, and it looks well as a as a book. You know, yeah, it actually interesting you say that. It feels a lot more like a traditional book cover in some ways compared to like the real busy kind of like you know double page spread folded over a book kind of thing that he he has done in the past so yeah i'm usually pretty down on the designs but it's a good one and there is obviously something inherently amusing in the the image of of death dressed up as a farmer (laughs) with the dungarees and everything on so you can't you can't really go too wrong with that so you don't don't need much more than that i think to to make kind of a an effective humorous book cover out of this one yeah Uh, but it's also maybe are kept together you could death with children on the planet the blue sky behind and the back covers planet blue sky behind and that's Mm. yeah we'll get to this later on but i can't help but wonder is there just like some of the big set pieces in the books previously that, that Kirby has, has liked to allude to or include details of on the cover are just too mental in this book, even for Kirby. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know what we're going to get to? And you're just going to be like, oh, yeah. how would you draw that? So we'll, 
we'll get there when we get there but like it'd be like josh kirby's take on stranger things is what we would end up with i think if he if he tried to like draw some of the stuff in the the third act of this book the third so, act is, is pretty much a josh kirby adaptation really isn't it I think it's too much, honestly, even for him. I think that's why we've ended up with the kind of stripped back cover, but we, we'll get there when we get there, as we okay, always do. Okay, so uh, first impressions. This will be interesting. I cannot recall if I read this book before. <laughs> so that is probably not what you wanted to hear. I have this sort of vague recollection that, like, when I was first getting into Discworld, that, like, I didn't like the death books, and I was like, I was going to read the city guard books. Um, weirdly, like, I was like, I don't like Rincewind. I don't like death. Like, well, what, what do you like, PJ? <laughs> You're supposed to be a Discworld fan. So I wonder, is that because, did I get mixed up between this and Mort? Because there is a little bit of overlap in terms of subject matter with, with death, stepping away from the role, stuff like that. Or I think possibly more likely, I might have picked this up after I read the Mort comic and I was like, pretty young when I read the Mort comic, so I might have picked this up afterwards and just bounced off it. I think there's kind of concepts in it, like like the concept of auditors, for example, that I just probably didn't grasp if I was like, say, 12, 13 years old when I picked it up. So I might have just bounced off it immediately and then just decided that I wasn't going to read this one or that I didn't like this one or whatever. So that's basically a long-winded way of saying that this this read is kind of my first impression, and I felt like <sighs> underwhelmed. Not the word, but it, it it certainly wasn't a revelation in terms of like me filling in the gaps in my Discworld reading and looking for like you know great new project material that I haven't experienced yet. Like this probably isn't up there. It feels like. A little bit of a retread of Mort and a little bit of a retread of moving pictures. Not in any kind of particularly bad way, but not in any kind of particularly mind-blowing way, which is obviously a, a, a tall order. It's a big ask, but like, I mean, Terry Pratchett is certainly more than capable of blowing people's minds, just not my mind on this occasion. Yes, I thought there was a bit of an element of a Mort part two in this. It takes a lot of the stuff that worked about Mort that maybe wasn't milked so much in terms of build over and it also makes some of the mistakes about that Mort did in sort of overpacking the story towards the end mm. um from the opener it's it's clear Wendell Poots is is gonna die um and it's so it's, it's a little bit picking up on the fate of gas Bode and moving pictures and following that I, I wondered was this written as a reaction? to that editorial um, maneuvering. Um, well, he actually, he wants to finally get away with killing a beloved protagonist, do you think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, yeah. Uh, I, was, I was quite sad knowing that was coming, but particularly as Wendell is given much more dimensions and he was, in moving pictures, he was just a, a geriatric old madman and quite fun. Uh, but hi, he's really, really fleshed out. Yeah, that really surprised me. And it, it's easily my favorite. Yeah, it is easily my favorite thing in this book is like, because I think I said it at the time, you know, Moving Pictures is one of the handful of Discworld books that I've reread the most. So I have this like really strong fixed idea of who Wendell Poons is in my head. And then 
and like you say, he's kind of a comedy button character uh, in that book. So to have him like fully fleshed out and be like a POV character in this, like I had no recollection of that for sure. And if I had picked this up, book up before, it would have been before I'd read Moving Pictures. So I wouldn't have made that connection anyway. But like, yeah, that if, if, if there is any kind of like revelation for me in, in reading this book now, it's, it's to spend an entire story with Wendell Poons as an actual person rather than just kind of like the butt of the jokes as he kind of was in Moving Pictures. So that was that was really cool, actually. And the first appearance of the auditors, we're trying not, not to spoil anything, but like I've been quite critical, I guess, about some of the more Lovecraftian kind of elements and like the dungeon dimensions and like just, you know, extra dimensional greeblies with lots of tentacles as bad guys for wizards. I'm just like, eh. Whereas I know that like Terry has different angles on this, you know, he's got more creativity to bring to that space. And the idea of the auditors who are obsessed with maintaining order essentially in the universe and making sure that like death doesn't grow a personality and that obviously things can go wrong if that happens as has happened in the past already in Discworld is a good idea. I think there's something more memorable about it. I think there's arguably more comedy to be drawn from it. And like anytime one of them refers to themselves in the first person, they pop out of existence. I think that's quite funny. So uh, I'm not sure how I missed that this was their first appearance. Obviously, again, without trying to spoil too much, they come up again later. And I obviously just accepted that whenever I got around to reading those books. I was just like, okay, yep, these are the universal bad guys. Cool. So yeah, it was really interesting to look back at their first appearance. So there is there's stuff in this book I like for sure. Uh, those probably being the two the two big ones. I mean, you've got you've got two really strong a stories built around characters, uh, Wendell and 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 Death, who's just on this uh, Western adventure as this, yeah. the, the stranger wandering into this small town, um, making friends and defeating the the villain that this is a combine harvester. Um, the combination harvester, and it's then you've fun. got the whole odd egg trolley mall story, which represents uh, the big finale on Wendell's side. And this is where it get, got really vague and hard for me to follow. And the Fresh Start Club were great characters, but they were a bit confusing. Like, we yeah. had, I had this problem in Mort that Terry was trying to do too many things, and this comes up again in, in these characters. Um, yeah, so I, would I have my gripes on the subplots. Um, and it's good to see cameos from Colon and Cohen and Albert and others. Um, but the A plots, if we leave aside the the, tr the supermarket trolley finale, the A plots are smashing. Yeah, it, de it definitely spirals out of control in a way that gets away from them. It feels like he's trying to do something similar. It's like a similar conceit to moving pictures, but like it's not as well formed, you know, in terms of like like the cinema being the this sort of extra dimensional threat, existential threat to to society, I guess, on on the disc, and then this vague idea that malls and there's I can sort of I sort of get it that like the idea that the suburbs and 
malls and like shopping centers or whatever are represent an existential threat to cities and what what makes cities uh, vibrant and uh, and lively and and stuff and it's like but I don't understand why that kind of comes out of this storyline about death going away. Like, I, I think the connection to that is quite tenuous. So, yeah, as a high concept, as a conceit, it doesn't quite land for me. It's got some bonkers imagery in it towards the end. Like, absolutely crazy stuff. That is like, yeah, I'm glad I read it at least once. Um, so, you know, going back and redoing the series, it's been worth it or doing this entry in the series has been worth it, at least for that. But yeah, it, it spirals out of control. It's, it doesn't feel as coherent as moving pictures did when it comes to the big kind of third act set piece. Quite agree. Well, I'm thinking I should probably um, show off my t-shirt at this point, oh. which is a Death of Rats. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. From the Discworld Emporium. That is dope. Yeah, and gosh, I didn't even mention that. First appearance of the auditors, but like first appearance of the death of rats. Again, no idea how I missed that on my first reading. I think whatever, I guess probably soul music, maybe. The next book where he turns up, it'd just be like, oh yeah, obviously there's a death of rats. Move on. Not not even questioning what his origin story may or may not have been. Because just like stuff like that exists in Discworld and you just kind of go with it. So yeah, it's good. It's nice to fill in some of these backstories and yeah. So, without further ado, part one, death is to be replaced and isn't keen on the idea. Wendell Poon celebrates his 130th birthday and dies. Comes back to life feeling better, but no one shares the sentiment. Dibbler finds riches in the stockroom. Sergeant Colon finds a hole digging faculty with celery. So, yeah, I mean, when you look at it like that, it, it's, it is a bit surreal right from the start this book isn't it i mean the whole snow globes thing that i think is meant to kind of lay the groundwork for this crazy mall story that's coming it is quite out there yeah so what are you like i mean i'm a fan just because i know what's coming i guess to a degree but like in terms of these new villains on the scene you know the the auditors like what's your kind of take on these guys as like a new kind of threat for death because it's hard to have a villain who can you know cause threat to death death is death you know so what's your kind of take on these dudes yeah the, the auditors and Azrael are very much putting me in the mind of those uh marvel characters that are sort of very godly like the living celestial mm. in betweener unfortunate name that um age well no. <laughs> that are they're just sort of so um far above so i kind of thought it was an odd choice or something specific about about azrael that that suggests this is a very powerful being who's got some say over how things on the disc happen and that there's there's other beings of that power status out there um I know yeah, it's we, interesting. we had the gods and but yeah, this like you say, this is something else. I mean, yeah. this is this is like yeah, in, in terms of your comic book references, yeah, this is like celestial level kind of and it's interesting. So it's like he's Azrael, which I believe I could be wrong. I should have looked it up. Uh the angel of death in the Bible. Is that right? Yeah. Or in or so... in the, whatever the Bible supplemental material. For me, it's just like 
he's he's the chapter master of the Dark Angels from Warhammer Forty Thousand. Yeah. So it's a cool name, if nothing else. But yeah, it sort of feels like he's like the death of deaths. He's like the Ur death in this, isn't he? He's like he's death's boss. So he's death is the death of the disc world, but Azrael is like the death of, of everything. I don't know. I don't feel it's like super well developed, if I'm honest, but it's good that there's a threat to death, obviously, you know, that there's there's forces out there that, that can destroy him if they so choose. So that the story has stakes. Actually, I'll probably just bring up that cosmic lore because um yeah, I think you had it right on with the death of deaths. So it's from the, the folk at Pratchat podcast. Um Ben and Elizabeth and reading around a bit myself. Azrael is a form of cosmic intelligence. Oh, that blew my mind a bit. There we go. It's me. Um <laughs> Because I don't think I've seen anything bigger than Great Atuan. Um, so he is the Islam angel of death, so death of the universe. And myth says that he has billions of eyes, and one of these closes every time somebody dies. Oh, that's Thanks. really awesome. Quite disturbing. <laughs> cool. Okay. Yeah, all right. So it's, it's Islamic rather than Judeo Christian. Cool. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, that is a great concept. Absolutely terrifying. And uh, yeah, I wish I'd had that image in my head when I was reading it. I think that yeah, it's great. Like the last, uh, last out, turn off the lights stuff. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, creepy. So yeah, good, good, good stakes. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's really super well integrated into the rest of the Discworld lore. As you say, like we've established gods and stuff of the disc before. Don't really hear much from them. But all of a sudden, we've got these big existential um, universe-defying threats. But we need them in this kind of story. We need them, so I guess that's okay. And um, we're back with the Wizards for two books in a row. And I mean, since Rincewind, we haven't really kind of hung around with like a, the same cast of characters for like two books on the trot so far, really, have we? Well, Moving Pictures does so much um, groundwork for this. It yeah. really resonates through this book that there's and honestly I think Moving Pictures is possibly my favourite book now where I was, as it was in the top three before mm-hmm. but the stuff with the wizards here it it hits the ground running the banter is there right away Um, you've got the bait and switch around Wendell's birthday party and he, he sure they've all forgotten it and it's a surprise yeah and, You've got Wendell, as I said, so much more fleshed out and he evolves to be quite sympathetic, quite quickly, pleasant company. And we're genuinely rooting for him, even though the, you know, outside of, I think, the clock ticking and the, sort of the sympathy for the elderly. Yeah, it's an interesting one, again, because I just had such a, such a concrete vision of him already in my, my head going into this. It's like, he is surprisingly sympathetic and it's such a weird goal for him to have. He, he basically just wants to die. <laughs> like he wants to just be yeah. done. Um, but it's not like this super morose kind of morbid kind of thing, I guess, because there's an investigative element to it where like he does have a mission to go on. He does meet quite a motley crew along the way. And then everything just goes batshit crazy at the end. Like it is quite a fun journey despite its ultimate aim. There is something quite sweet in, you know, like the fog clearing from his mind and like he's rediscovering, like walking around and 
being able to think clearly and being able to interact with people outside of a wheelchair and stuff and have full conversations with people and stuff like that. And there is something kind of bittersweet about that, that that was obviously something he had previously and had lost. So yeah, he's like a pretty well-rounded character, to totally shattering my previous um, kind of perceptions of him. So that, that was quite cool. And this is quite a tight, um, well, yeah, quite a tight first part. Um, it all, it also lets the characters breathe quite a bit. Yeah, because we ha we haven't the, the 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 more characters get added and added and added as we go, whereas this in this first section it's hasn't reached capacity yet. So yeah, I feel like there's a bit more breathing room here. Get to spend time with Wendell, especially, and that's that's great. So you have questions about about road diggers yeah what is it with road diggers just dig 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 all the time dig just yeah just just gives me flashbacks of, of peppa pig mr bill I'm, I'm sure it's not on your radar at all but for any other parents listening it'd just be absolutely triggering i'm sure so the, yeah i like and also you're trying to put windows and windle in the ground and um <laughs> it reminds me although try, trying to think of a cooler more acceptable reference than Peppa Pig. It reminds me of Ghostbusters 2, I guess, you know, where they're digging up the road and the cops stop them and stuff. Like, Wizards digging up the road has a similar vibe to scientists digging up the road because they don't give a shit about the chaos that they're causing because they've got a mission, they've got a, you know, knowledge has to be found. And I was just trying to think of the timeline on this, what, what predates it. This came out in 1991. I'd really the... like to hear from listeners who dig up the roads. Please Ghostbusters, yeah, us. Ghostbusters 2 was out. Or so Ghostbusters 2 came out in 1989. So I feel this might be a Ghostbusters reference. But if, as Andy says, if you are a road digger, if you're out there digging up roads. Are you a member of a secret society with an agenda? Road diggers, please get in touch. Or if you're a Ghostbuster with a secret agenda, please get in touch as well. So this is a fun working class element with going trying to deal with this mess. And of course... Terry using his avatars to nitpick and misunderstand elements of lore like steak and celery. Yeah. And like you said, it's nice to have Colon in the mix here as well. That sort of real world that like if wizards dig up a road in Ankmore Pork, obviously characters we've met previously who are in the City Watch, that's going to become their problem and it just makes everything feel nice and connected and whole. Cool. There's, well, there's one more element of part one. Oh, it's tree time. No way we cutting tree. tree time. No way we cutting out tree time. So um, today we're looking at counting pines, and from the novel, the only known example of borrowed evolution, counting pines altered their genetic code to adapt to outside forces. This unique ability has run into a snag when dealing with humans. However, when humans first started cutting them down, the counting pines assumed that they wished to count their rings and so adapted by displaying their age and numbers on their trunks. Unfortunately, this adaptation led to them being nearly exterminated by the demand for exotic house number plates. So, um, from science.org and credit to Reddit user escapement, counting pines are a real thing. What? Yes. Uh, Go on. <laughs> the woody vine, Bacala trifoliota this is a chameleon vine discovered in chile transforms its leaves to copy a variety of hosts 
native to Chile and Argentina. Like only butterflies, it imitates hosts, mimetic polymorphism. When the vine climbs onto a tree's branches, its versatile leaves can change their size, shape, color, orientation, and even the vein patterns to match the surrounding foliage. If the vine crosses over to a second tree, it changes, even if the new host leaves are 10 times bigger with a contrasting shape. The deceit serves as a defense against plant-eating herbivores like weave, weevils and leaf beetles. It is unclear how B. trifoliolata vines discern the identity of individual trees and shapeshift accordingly. The vines could read cues hidden in odors or chemicals secreted by trees or microbes may transport gene activating signals between the fraud and the host. There we go. What? That is crazy. That I can't even, I'm really struggling to even like form a mental picture of how that works. The woody chameleon vine, Bokila trifoliata. Crazy, crazy stuff. All right. Yeah, I'm going to have to let you do the next bit just while I absorb that information. My worldview has just been irreparably altered. So, uh, book part two, in which Bill Doerr is employed as a farmhand and ingratiates himself with the locals. The patrician assembles Ankmore Park's authorities. The spirit botherer finds her spirits bothered. At the university, the right of a shank day is evoked. Um, Windle seeks out the fresh star club. Lupin deals with a robber and Schleppel lurks. So yeah. quite a, a jam-packed sequence this as well. It's starting to pick up, yeah. Um, lots of more characters, like a lot more characters in this. I would argue double the amount probably that than we would like to meet in such a short space of time, you know, between the Fresh Start Club, Mrs. Cake, and all the the village people, as village people, you know, I mean, the Bill Door supporting cast. Yeah, uh, it's a lot. It, it, yeah. So, yeah. Where do you want to start? You want to start um, with Death, yeah, Death, the, the Western, the man, the, the stranger coming to town, that kind of stuff? It really is. And it's so incredibly, well, I thought it was nuanced. I've seen a lot of Westerns in the time. And I didn't realize until quite a way through the book that that's what was being done here because mm. it's not packed with um, genre jokes or any of that. It's, it can, it can be read quite subtly. So I really, really. Like yeah. That. Agreed. I think it's, it's nice. Some, and we saw this a little bit in moving pictures, I guess, as well. Like some of those big American tropes are softened almost in Discworld because you know, Terry put such like a distinctly English slant on them, I suppose. This may be one right. way to put it. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on here. I think it, it works pretty well. I like especially his interactions with the people in the pub and having to sort of consciously decide to be like bad at darts and bad at pool and stuff <laughs> so that he can make friends. I think that's quite sweet. Yeah, they've, they're all sort of uh, Jake Bottomley, Gabby Wheels, William Spigot, they're all a bit. Flashed out, fleshed out to some level, and 
of course yeah, they, they have these stereotypical english names like bottomly like you know so that doesn't sound like a western name you know i think that that all helps like soften the tropes like you know it's just funny as well and um, mrs flitworth <laughs> mrs flitworth and i i think it's here she's her home is described as just having stuff all over the floor like at one of those charity shops it just has items that were built prior to the 1960s yeah yeah it's a very specific image of a very specific type of person but i think we all have probably met an old lady like that in our time yeah. so it's it's very relatable for sure and the idea that death lives with somebody like that is inherently funny yeah the, the two of them have got a really a combination that i think really really works yeah because she kind of knows what's up which is quite good isn't it she's like yeah, you need to come up with a plausible name here, you fucking weirdo. <laughs> you know? And and that pays off so nicely then at the end when it's her turn to go, I guess, you know, and she has established this relationship with him and she's kind of she's been wise to it all along and they have that nice moment together at, at the end. Yeah, I like all that stuff a lot. The Bill Door name. I feel like I was aware of that, so I don't know if I got that maybe from just like you know, reading around Reddit and Elspace and stuff, but you've you've got some thoughts about that. Oh, well, again, another theft from uh, Ben and Elizabeth of Pratchett, which is a builder. Oh, yeah. Um, building, a, like he's building a new life here. Mm. Um, which, yeah, I, what kind of over my head it went to. Uh, but yeah, you can see that. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's good. He's good. With, I mean, yeah, Terry's good with names, so it feels unlikely to be uh coincidence and what am i all, all, always love it again trying to hold my tongue on spoilers but i always love it death's interaction this sounds dark but it's not dark death's interaction with children <laughs> you know and the fact that sal sal can see the skellington, skellington. Uh, yeah yeah and just I, you know, he's really well observed i'm i wonder what age uh rihanna was at this stage but like like the dialogue that the children it's hard to write good children sometimes it's, again weird thing to say but sal feels really well observed just like based on my own crazy kids you know it's like yep i can see my kids getting on like that in the face of a skellington so i love those bits and obviously you know there's a, an emotional investment and payoff later on when, when sal is put in danger sal does something depowering to to death slash bill because sal's a child um that that remains in place yeah those are really fun scenes absolutely yeah i see what you're saying i see in your notes here sorry just skipping jump into talking oh, about yes. mrs cake mrs cake is a good concept it's a good idea for a character that i think is significantly underutilized in this book she's like terrorizes all the religions i guess by being like too into it yeah but that's i mean the conceit isn't like crystal clear to me but that's that's the gist isn't it that she's too into it isn't she what is it so she asks like too many questions so she gets so in any given religion if mrs kate comes along she's going to get so into it that she's going to find all the loopholes or she's going to kind of pick apart all the contradictions she's going to ruin your religion basically by, <laughs> by being too by being too good at it is well, that that a, is that yeah, your she's a, very apotheosis of the god bother but in you know a fresh take yeah so i mean like yeah as you know kind of a fairly died in the wool atheist or whatever um but with an interest having an interest in various mythologies and, and whatnot i find that 
to be an idea with quite a lot of potential, but we don't spend a great deal of time with her and don't actually really get to see her interact with any of these religions. It's more like, it's this running gag where the representatives of other religions are just like, oh shit, Mrs. Cake. But we never really get to see her interact yeah, with them. Yeah, so. there's a little legend aspect to her, isn't there? Yeah, and even like the, the priests that are like in the, the Indiana Jones style yeah. dungeon temple later on are still like, even they know about her. And that is funny, but I would, I hesitate to say I would like to see more because there's already way too much in this book already. But like, mm. I think she maybe deserved a place and another story where she would have had a bit more room to breathe and operate. But I mean, well, what a problem to have too many good ideas. So you've got a note here about uh, one man bucket. I, 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 I couldn't really this. connect with one man bucket at all. No. And it's part of the Western trope, I guess, going on, you know, there's a bit of a native American thing and there's allusions to him having a drinking problem, which isn't ideal uh, for, Sort of stereotypical reasons uh, and he does he like yeah i don't i'm, I'm gonna stop bringing these up eventually because like you know the books are of a certain time and even when terry does kind of walk a bit close to the line in terms of cultural tropes and archetypes like there is always something that kind of undercuts it there is always something that kind of makes it a, not totally one-dimensional and even with one man bucket like he's kind of doing his shtick but his cultural stick the indian thing is is performative like he slips in and out of it and so he isn't as, as one-dimensional a character as he might as he might initially appear so i i, I don't be hypercritical about it or whatever but it, it still it still doesn't sit completely right with me i guess and again it's just one idea too many it's like just so much stuff going on here like the spirit guide thing it doesn't really i mean i i don't really know what it adds i think i think we're quite in agreement with this unfortunately yeah um, so we're eventually eventually I'll, I'll i mean i'll stop i feel i mean i'm, I'm nitpicking here big time like you know uh, say, let's, let's keep it going the fresh yeah. dark club the fresh dark club i think got off to a, a crack and start like but that's sort of being exposed to their setup and not knowing that terry's gonna have to mobilize all these different characters later yeah. on um so it's a novel concept they're quite enjoyable people red shoe yeah uh, i think i alluded to it when we were talking about pyramids maybe you know that the zombies would be a fit and i was thinking about rage uh so again so this is the third big kind of character i guess in this book that i didn't realize this was their introduction. Yeah, he's good. It's a fun concept. I think Schlappel is good. I love uh, Lupine or Lupine or, or uh, you know, the idea of a, a dog that turns into a werewolf instead of a person that turns into a werewolf is brilliant. <laughs> I don't particularly like the vampires, the working class vampires. Really? Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff. I mean, if there's pipe being laid there, that it's going to get better. It's going to come later. Um, All you have to do is cast your eye over the uh the titles the book titles that are upcoming and you maybe get a sense that there's going to be vampires again mm. so i think he's noodling with some stuff that that's going to come back in in a slightly more coherent form um yeah like you say there's stuff other characters that just don't really exist beyond these early scenes like mrs drill mr gorper 
whatever that is. And then, like, what's going on with this Banshee? Because, like, the Banshee is called Exolite or Exolite. Like, that sounds, like, Mesoamerican to me. Hmm. It's not Irish. I mean, if I can say for sure it's not Irish because there's no X in Irish. Like, when you write Irish in Roman in Roman alphabet, you, you don't use X, right? So it's not Irish. And Banshees are just unequivocally Irish mythology, right? Mm. So this just feels, like, wrong. I hesitate to just say that so flat out, but, like, this is wrong. <laughs> and there is there's something kind of funny in, like, the Banshee giving him notes, and the notes just say, woo! Like, yeah. that's funny, but, like, why isn't the Banshee Irish, and why isn't the Banshee a woman? Like, those are, those are literally the two things that Banshees are. <laughs> and the third thing is ghosts. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of the icing on the cake for, like, how unfocused, I guess, to me, the the Fresh Start Club felt. But Sorry, uh, one, of the, one of the problems I had with them were just there's, there's so many to, to sort of try and keep an eye on, and it kind of overshadowed the, the two scenes after that, which were based around Lupine and uh schleppel mm-hmm. and it, it kind of particularly with lupine it detracted from my appreciation of him because i had all these other characters in mind yes yeah because that's a, such a good idea but it, a lot yeah it's yeah. such a good idea but it can almost get lost in the shuffle here of all these extra characters but yeah lupine rage and schleppel at least you know you've got a core cast of three within that group that are, are totally worthwhile um and are really fun and earn their place for sure. The rest of it feels like, you know, a collection of things that are maybe being thrown at the wall to see what sticks. Uh, some will come back in other books, others won't. Definitely want to know what the deal with the Mexican Banshee is, um, if anybody knows. Maybe I've got it totally wrong. Maybe there is a similar myth in Mesoamerican mythology, and if there is, please let me know. Share it with me. Bill is disturbed by Mrs. Litworth's clock, by dreams, dead rats, and a small child. An act of heroism leads to confrontations with mortality, and the blacksmith is called upon. Mrs. Cake knows things. Modo the gardener finds a trolley, and sauce is applied to a particularly nasty compost heap. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All this stuff with Modo as well. I'd almost even forgotten about that. Um, so my synopsis is there are fairly clean, because that's the way this book is structured. It's quite well compartmentalized and so you could be reading 20 25 pages about the wizards and then 25 pages about bill and um pratchett doesn't often do that and i think it works really well here it It does i think it's the only way that this to make sense of this narrative because he does have so many moving parts and yeah i think i like it yeah i like especially the time spent with Bill and Mrs. Flitworth, like the idea, because it just makes it feel like death has really has separated himself, you know, because you, as you say, you get to spend 20, 25 pages with him in this normal life on the hoof, and that makes it feel really tangible. Yeah, those bits are great. This is, I guess, you know, the, the foundations of the death of rats, all the dead rats coming along. The fire occurs and, and oh Bill right has yeah, to yeah, yeah yeah go in and save Sal and I think um and I, I think I, it's I genuinely on the clock it's genuinely like up in the air as to whether he's going to yeah. do anything you know like it really feels like he's not going to save her 
are we like he's death like why would he like it really like when you're talking about like when it feels like gaspode is dead you know in moving pictures like here like shit he's not gonna save that kid which is like a big swing narratively obviously he does something and it, but it's not like a clear clear-cut hero moment and you know sal's living on borrowed time and there's complications involved in that as well oh yeah the other thing that like really humanizes ironic to say that that humanizes bill in this section like i love the dream sequence and i, I usually don't in books you know because you can kind of see him coming and you're like oh yeah some symbolism wow but like it's quite heartbreaking because it's like the first time death has ever dreamt and he doesn't know that he's dreaming and the auditor comes and tells him it's all been a mistake and he can go back oh, yeah. and then he wakes up and it's a dream but because he's never experienced a dream before it's it hits him so much harder and i actually find that like quite emotional i think this this whole section of um death becoming more bill door like so this was first explored in mort and it it does a lot for um my problems with pratchett's death um in that you know i've i've already come through gaiman's death who is mm -hmm. just fantastic uh dd who um in high cost of living i think it was revealed once every hundred years death spends a day on earth as a real person so we're in similar territory and of course pratchett and game have just yeah, the release good, good yeah. omens about right. this point so death because he's so visually typical he's a skeleton in a hood with a scythe you know he feels quite problematic and quite stereotype and quite cold as a character mm -hmm. but he's, he's genuinely funny or he's explored that harry's house or harga ribs path um yeah, i still that's still my favorite part of mort <laughs> so you get we get a death that's belligerent he's got dry wit he thinks he's smart he's smarter than he is he's a bit condescending um and in bill he's got feelings of compassion coming through he can be quite likable and as we'll even see at one point he's jealous of us of what our lives are mm. and our bravery and there's some guarded yearning for that yeah and that's that's the problem as far as the auditors are concerned isn't it is that he that's he's developed this personality and that's they don't want that you know death should just be death so i guess for that to be since that's kind of the inciting incident of this story it's really good that he sticks with it and actually puts his money where his mouth is and shows that stuff and develops death as a character the oh man the weird trolley stuff in this section like this really threw me <laughs> it's like what the hell is going on here like the snow globes is one thing but the trolleys how like how do you feel about this yeah so it, it took a, a couple of minutes to translate from uh steel baskets moving on wheels to supermarket Shopping trolley. right we're going yeah, here yeah, yeah, Always, always fun supermarket trolleys just running on their own um, free will or whatever. There is something, for whatever reason, <laughs> inherently funny in the shopping trolley as an object. Yeah, that I will, I will absolutely concede that. I don't know about your neck of the woods, but my neck of the woods, there will perpetually be a shopping trolley living in the waterworks, which is the park beside my house that has a big pond, two big ponds, and. It's just like a fixture, 
like uh, there will be at least one shopping trolley in at least one of the ponds at all times. You never see anybody put one in. You never see anybody take one out. But it's not always in the same place. So I get it. Like I mean, you know, shopping trolleys they they pop up in funny places, and it is inherently amusing. But like, yeah, there's the and, and even just it can be something funny about a lone shopping trolley, even on the, the in the parking area, just sitting out there, and uh, you know, it it evokes like some sort of eccentric rampant child has gone mad or or maybe some disenfranchised former um promoter like uh Jim McGaw for those of you who remember Jim McGaw um it, he God. was he was into his love for those crazy prices um, <laughs> that is a deep cut <laughs> yeah yeah I mean there's yeah like abandoned shopping trolley hotline I think is a radio head uh EP. Oh wow, well, I didn't know that. So like, so I get where he's coming from. I think the way he introduces it is a little bit too clever, clever. Like you say, it took me a while as well because it, we first meet them in the garden, and it's like, oh, Moto has got this trolley, has got this basket on wheels. I'm like, well, what is it? Is it like one of those little gardening trolley, you know, things, or like what? What is this? And then when they appear other places, like, no, that's not it oh it's a basket oh yes okay it's a shopping trolley so yeah maybe it's just me being stupid but it definitely took a lot longer to click for me than perhaps it should have and it, and it was becoming a distraction there was already so much going on in the spec that that became a slight issue for me yeah snow globes to eggs you can see but eggs to shopping trolleys and how this relates to the uh removal of death um yeah, because yeah, it's all meant to be coming out of an abundance of life energy. I, I, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't. Maybe somebody uh, could write us in and, and tell us what the yeah, conceit is. But sounds a bit contentious because, you know, this is clearly sort of an anti-capitalist uh, bit of tract here. But so yeah. we're saying that life is commerce. I don't know, but but that but that is so like, yeah. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this. But like, yeah. <laughs> so there's no death. And so the, there's too many, the spirits are building up and there's an abundance of life force. The harvests are all really big. The life isn't going anywhere. And that seems to prompt the birth of the, all these snow globes, which in turn leads to the shopping trolleys, which in turn leads to the malls. And that all is all connected within the story. But I can't, for the life of me, figure out why, like what the conceit, like what's he trying to say with that? It, it doesn't, it doesn't have... A thesis in the way that move, the moving pictures Hollywood stuff does. So I don't know. It's it's a bit mental. It is a bit. It is quite funny in places, but it is definitely way over my head. Yeah, the, the trolley stuff is quite. It's quite absurdist in a very, a very Python esque thing of which Pratchett seems to be the. Yeah, the that's logical step. Um, Could just be I'm, overthinking it. I'm wondering with that whole supply chain, you know, is is Terry envisaging? Reaper man going out to the the printers and into the into the lorries into the bookshops and the whole the shopping trolleys, into the shopping trolleys and that whole um, chain of you know all the steps that that happen. Um, yeah, it's a bit anyway. Yeah, we can come back to it. I see you obviously invested heavily in your Death of Rats T-shirt and your. Uh, you're disappointed in the the minor role that he yeah, plays he's in quite, the book. he's quite tiny yeah it's it's a really like i can't believe i didn't know this was the origin story but yeah 
don't worry, you'll get you'll get a chance to um to refer back to the death of rats in 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 other episodes. So that was cool. That's another origin story ticked off ticked off the list for me. The compost heap. I mean, there's just so many weird <laughs> creature battles in this book. From this point on, it kind of begins here, doesn't it, with the compost heap? Yeah. Now, this is another thing that just gets... doesn't make any sense, but my it's <laughs> really fun here. Yeah, because it's a comp. Well, yeah, it's very loose, isn't it? It's a compost heap, so it is alive. Like they have, you know, worms and stuff living in them, and because there's no there's an abundance of life energy, it starts moving around. But like, why is it trying to eat them? It's trying to eat them or something. Um, yeah, but I guess it does kind of start to break down a little bit there. But it's good fun. It's good to see wizards oh, actually you did a like there. Compost heap breaks down. Hey, yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, it's good to see wizards actually like fighting stuff with magic again because we only got a brief, a brief I mean, glance. We've actually at that had quite a lot of wizard fighting, but I think this is one of the better ones. Um, yeah, and it's been a while. It's you know yeah. like sor- sorcery. It was all a bit too big and a bit too apocalyptic. I mean, it was Hollywood of... sorcery. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and then yeah, moving pictures with the fifty thousand foot woman or whatever, and then. Yeah, give me some dudes throwing fireballs at a compost heap. That that's a bit more grounded. It's a bit more fun. Yeah, do you think that this works better now that we know these wizards' names, or at least their roles? Yeah, I mean, yeah. just a just that continuity because I know that's something I complained about at the start is that the the revolving door cast of wizards was kind of a gag. The whole point was that like it's hard to survive as a high level wizard because like somebody's always coming along trying to take your place, whereas. And that that's fine for a gag in a book, but like if you want to build this world, which obviously Terry does, and you want to revisit the university as a precinct within that world, it needs to have a coherent cast or a consistent cast. And I think it's really nice to see essentially the exact same group from Moving Pictures again here. Yeah. It, and it's yeah, it's it's the book is but i mean imagine if we were like meeting another arch chancellor again yeah. you know it would be our Very fourth much. or whatever uh moving and, pictures really is a power bencher so, yes you know for it, sure that's up so much of this and Rid- so ridgley i guess continues to come into his own as kind of the <laughs> yes no nonsense really really fun here i really yes. got ridgley and uh the dean who is yeah. all in gung-ho at this point and now those two continue throughout the, the book just yeah being a bit um rambo on it yes it is and it's a uh, again with we'll trying not to spoil things it's a concept that returns stronger later and i think anyway good. so yes dingo and rambo is it is good <laughs> we've got we got schleppel being asked to, to keep under the table i i schleppel's a bit of a one-note gag but a lot of a really good one-note gag yeah, I like it when he goes mobile with his own door later on, and <laughs> and I like that he kind of actually gets to to sort of save the day to a certain degree as well. Um, and again, we, yeah, we've got that thing where Terry is employing the trick of having different characters working on different pieces of the puzzle that they'll all bring together in the end. We've had that um, at a few books before, and it's always worked well. So, yep, absolutely. I mean, I think it works slightly less well here, possibly just because the there's too many, maybe like a, a thread, one thread too many coalescing for this. And also it's just about to get absolutely crazy with the mall. <laughs> right. but, but you know what I mean? I mean, I don't feel like there's as, like if that stuff wasn't there, 
Fuck, I don't know. I'm really on the fence about it because I, I do feel like it goes too far, but there are a lot of elements of it I like. Whereas, you know, the the, the final act is really driven by death, by the whole Bill Door versus the new death kind of storyline, and then whether death gets to retake his post, that's when all the life force dissipates, and that's ultimately what saves all the other characters, and that's ultimately what allows Wendell to die. So all the business with the mall, you know, if that didn't happen, would it really have much of an impact on mm. the rest of the story? I don't know. Um, and because it is just a little bit on the abstract and a little bit on the crazy side for me, uh, I sort of feel like I'd live without it, but... Right, yeah, because I mean, Wendell's story is isn't so much it's, it's tied to death story in, in a way but you know it, it's free to go it's its own direction um yeah exactly and then i mean this is the direction he, he chose and control. he's got something he wants to say about this stuff and that's fine but it didn't land super well for me i guess the new death is an interesting one i guess it's worth talking about too because that is obviously what a lot of the stories building towards there is a seance the Dean goes into battle. The city is alive and has predators. Bill Dore competes with a combination harvester. Music sweeps Ankmore Pork, if you could call it that. Mr. Dibbler isn't trying to sell anything. Wendell Poons and the Fresh Start Club enter a subterranean hellscape. Meanwhile, Bill Dore faces death at high noon. Ned Simnel is not to be trusted. So indeed. The city is alive and has predators. This feels again a little bit I feel there's like Neil Neil Gaiman overlap here. Isn't there like a uh sort of Sandman story about cities being alive as well? Or like cities having I could be wrong. Um, this sounds a bit like uh a bit like the Ramadan story. Or so, actually it's in that sort of arc from about issue. 50 to 56, uh, it's a different city at night time. And... Oh, yeah, yeah. There's something, there was something lurking at the back of my head there. And it's an idea that I, I like. I mean, I'm from a city, not from a big city, you know, and you are too. And like, I think there is something to be said. There is a certain magic about urban areas, about living in a city and the, about society and people coming together and, and all that kind of stuff. And, Obviously, it inspires inspires a lot of stories, inspires a lot of myth. So the idea that like cities can be killed is interesting. Um, the idea that they are killed by shopping malls is very 1980s slash 1990s, which is fine. This whole bit kind of reminds me of, of uh, Stranger Things, I guess, where they have the big you know, Stranger Things spoilers here for anybody who cares. Have the big fight with their particular extra dimensional um, monster in a mall in series three or whatever. And it all feels very, very similar to this actually, in that it's all gross and wet and there's like living tissue everywhere. And like, whether you buy into this or not, like he does describe it quite well, doesn't he? Like it, it is pretty creepy. Um, I was really entranced by this sort of idea that, um, yeah, cities can be infected and infested cities can breed and there's this whole metaphor going on for the destruction and death that commercialization can cause um mm. it's 
an action by the lack of death, a form or facade of life. Yeah, I mean, but, if you were telling the story now, I mean, what's what's killing yeah, cities now? Yeah. Landlords, I guess. <laughs> you know, like nobody can afford to live in a city anymore, but they're not going to the mall either. So like what, you know, this story now would be, I think it's a story that can still be told, but it would be told in a, in a different way. There would be a different villain. I think I must have got at some level what you were talking about earlier, because I've got in my notes here about, you know, our own sort of interactions with capitalism and mm -hmm. that is a form of life you get, you know, you get that thrill when you're shopping mm, when something yeah. new has arrived and it's kind of a facade, but it's also genuine. And is that a two-edged thing that buying and selling makes us feel alive? But then we get to, you know, say a bigger brand, Coca-Cola, take an example. Where you've mm -hmm. got murder associated, you've got obesity, you've got drought, and we could pick any of the larger named corporations and find you know, these these gross deprivations, mm -hmm. and we stress out if we don't have the supplies we need at home, mm. and you've got then the whole element of poverty, which is psychological, and a small you know we're both sole traders or mm. uh, freelancers and with you know not necessarily with um contracts of death probably not with pensions from underneath it you know we'll work yeah. to the point of sickness to look after ourselves and in your case your your family and indeed but the capitalist machine kind of teaches us to sort of ignore those soul traders you to gravitate towards the big labels mm. Yeah, and that, very yeah. thoughtful when I put that down. And there, yeah, yeah, no, and there, I mean, trying to think back, I guess, putting yourself in that kind of late 80s, early 90s mindset, you know, where like these malls were been popping up all your Westfields and things like that all over the UK, and they were all identical, weren't they? And they all had the same shops in them and they all had the same layout and stuff like that. So, yeah, the idea that these things are, as you say, they're papering over what makes cities unique, you know, the, the soul traders, the little bookshops, you know, instead of going into the city and seeking those things out, you just drive to the suburbs and you go to the small and all the stuff is there exactly the same as if you drove to a different suburb outside a different city. So yeah, there, there's definitely something in that. It was definitely a very specific anxiety, I think specific to that time and specific to creative, well, not solely specific to creative people, but like certainly something that would it be causing anxiety for creative people, I think, at that time too. So yeah, nice little snapshot. And do you feel like like me that this is fairly straight and at the capitalist track? There's no there's not much subtlety in it. It's it's fairly sort of saying there's you know, unregulated that capitalism is dangerous. I don't or not overstretching. I mean, cer yeah, cer it. certainly commercial, certainly this level of commercialism certainly the specific type of commercialism i think that he's definitely critical of that i don't think i think he's always quite careful not to make the really grand sweeping yeah um political statements in fact he's he's he is occasionally quite critical of of movements that are or that are too grand and too sweeping and lack subtlety and you know yeah. so uh, yeah I, I feel like it's it's maybe slightly more specific criticism than that but but i mean obviously 
what underpins the kind of rampant commercialism he's criticizing is, is capitalism. And again, I think if this story was being told now, you know, when we're 30, 30 years further into the, the late stage of capitalism, I think that would be harder to ignore that than it was in kind of the early 90s or the late 80s, say. So, yeah, I think it it has to be kind of taken of its time. Where does that now, lead? You mentioned Bildor versus New Death, and that's quite a fight. That's quite a a big, um, climactic... Such a big um, Western moment coming yeah. to your head, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, and it um, it's quite well um, described for visualization. Yeah, which is good, and I, I I don't know how I feel about New Death because like it's tricky conceit because the auditors are obviously well. Actually, I think there is maybe something a bit clever going on here that I initially realized because the auditors they're like trying to strip all personality away from this kind of all these goings on, you know, like death should just be death and they're the auditors and they shouldn't have personality and death has personality or death shouldn't have personality. But, but the auditors keep accidentally developing their own personalities and a new death still does have a personality. It's just kind of a shit one. Like he's, <laughs> there's no reason for yeah. him to have a horse at all. Never mind a skeleton horse. You know, there's no reason for death to be a skeleton or to hold the scythe. Like there's no reason for any of this, but that's, it's inevitable that death manifests in that way for some reason. So like, I think it is. Yeah. There, I think he is trying to say something about that because it is kind of set up in the first encounter with the auditors that the personality is inevitable uh, when it comes to these things. And that's ultimately why our death wins, I think. But not, I don't know. Actually, I, I sort of just made that up. But yeah, because otherwise, I don't know what I was expecting from the death. Cause like, right. Our death is a skeleton with a hood, a scythe, and a horse. So, like, what? What's he's the original person? cook? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the OG. Like, and um, what? I was genuinely curious to see, like, what what would his replacement, devoid of personality, like, what would it be? But then it was just kind of like a slightly less fun version of of original death. Yeah, like new coke, like crap, crap death. So, yeah, I, th I think he was trying to say something about something with that <laughs> i guess <laughs> but me it made for a cool fight anyway yeah i got really excited i think it's probably one of my favorite moments actually it's still very fresh in my mind yeah um, yeah so i think the point is that the universe does have a personality that does feel like something that kind of comes back on the light touch again and again and that to ignore that and to, or to try to suppress that or to try to ignore that is like defeats the purpose of living. I think there's something that feels vaguely in the right area. The academics awaken in a living mall. Combination harvester learns the value of a three it's gripply. Ridkily decides no man left behind. There is a closing down sale. Death faces off against the dark servants and strikes a bargain with Azrael. Mrs. Flitworth receives intimate gifts. Bill Dorr gets one last dance. Wendell Poons gets to know who he is before he knows who he was. Death of rats can't ride a cat. Maybe some kind of dog. Some good stuff here. I, I couldn't possibly read closing down sale. It, it's the way closing down sleigh. Yeah, I, I should have prepped that 
yeah i like that that is for me actually one of the creepiest parts of the whole mall thing is it like yeah trying to communicate communicate through text and all the like creepily misspelled stuff like i'm so on the fence about that stuff um but the combine <laughs> the combination harvester we haven't really talked about actually up until yeah. now. that's about to meet its doom so so um and is this new death as, as well another new death or the combo harvester yeah well, that's 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 the metaphor isn't it yeah it's it's, it's given makes sense there's I'm, something else going on there which is we saw it a little bit in moving pictures but a little bit more here like a little bit of technology creeping into the disc world a little bit of recognizable modern technology and that that's all slowly building towards some interesting stories so yeah again this is one that i had missed previously so it was it was interesting to see that what is a three eighths gripply? So I assume it's three eighths of an inch. What is a gripply? Mm. Um, I did not research this. No, me neither. Not not very well. I'm a little bit handy. I fixed a vacuum cleaner recently. I was quite proud of that. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's a gleeful feeling. That. But I don't think I could fix a combine harvester. I was just putting that out. No, um, out. I've got a. There's a photo my parents have of me very young, sitting on a combine harvester. Um, cool. We you love it. some like... friends out in the country and visited them and I got a seat up there. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Little boys love love big farm machines. All the Mrs. Flitworth stuff, the, the intimate gifts as you elegantly describe them. I I enjoyed that a lot. That it reminded me more of um of of Mort Death, you know, where he's like he's trying to make his way in the world, you know, but just de death trying to interact with humans just trying to do normal stuff you know is is great like i love the, all the pool and darts i love him when he's the cook and haggers i remember in more i love them when he went to the careers officer so like having him trying to buy flowers and chocolates and stuff is just great um let's talk about the the klosnik downslay um oh yeah <laughs> and i haven't actually talked much in detail about this this shopping mall which i i think the maybe lovecraftian Level, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our elevator and there's a sort of honeycomb type shop cells. I imagery wise, as I say, like it is, it it sort of stays with me a bit, and I, it's super creepy. And I like that he is. I mean, again, we saw it in moving pictures, you know, trying to wrap wrap the Lovecraftian horror inside mundane day to day stuff. And that elevates it for sure. Like that definitely makes it creepier. Definitely makes it scarier. Because I don't necessarily buy the, con the overall conceit of this as well as I did for moving pictures. I, I'm not as invested in it. But like, yes, from from like an imagery point of view, it's it's all it's a shame actually that it that it it's not as well integrated into the story because it's it is something that has stayed with me. Like you said, the the elevators and like the way that the writing. The organic kind of writing and uh, it is super creepy like it, it definitely is yeah um the i they find the setup it, of know. it a bit um a bit fragmented where they appeared yeah. to be on the university grounds in one moment and then the next it was like uh there's a hole and then there's a whole subterranean escape and it wasn't quite clear to me with the you know at what point we entered the the underground um so it was yeah, it was probably the later half of those 
descriptions that um kind of worked for me and I I still wasn't sure what was going on. I think this was down to this is where the multitude of characters really lets down the yeah. action. Um and yeah. Um and so you said the, the vampire couple didn't do much for you and um similarly. No, and yeah, the fact yeah, the fact that they're all along for the ride, it does it, it does definitely slow this down and like as I say, it sort of makes it all feel a little bit less coherent because I'm not really quite sure what the conceit is. But uh, I do, <laughs> like a horde, like a hive of shopping trolleys, like shopping trolleys acting like the aliens in Aliens is funny. It did occur to me this would be one that um, would would really benefit from some kind of film or animation adaptation. And actually, just while that has come up, um, there is an adaptation of the of about seven minutes of Reaper Man, pretty right. much just as a an introduction to the Discworld. Um, there's not much in terms of serious story, but it was made by Cosgrove Hall, who brought us Danger Mouse and Duckula. That's um, right, yeah. And it's yeah, you search it on YouTube. There's about seven minutes, and it's quite enjoyable. I mean, this would be insane, like to bring to the screen. Would, I, well, they sort of did it. I mean, I mentioned it earlier. They did sort of do something similar to this in Stranger Things, and it's it's horrific, <laughs> like in, in in all the ways that it's intended to be horrific, you know. Um, but to have like a, a a horde of shopping trolleys running through that, and wizards throwing fireballs and a, a boogeyman putting himself in the mix, I think would be would be quite something for sure as a spectacle on its own it does seem crazier than like the 50 foot woman and all the stuff at the end of moving pictures but it's not like except for the shopping trolleys like there's nothing within the mall itself that i feel like lands like a really good gag like i know you like the close nick down sleigh but like i find that a bit creepier than i did funny i think there's quite uh, quite a use of um textual anomalies or in this handwritten writing and then Azrael's uh no which I saw the uh on the right hand side of my page I saw the big the full stop mm. and um yeah just knew just got a peek and I knew to put it away and not not to look at it until I got there. What are the advantages perhaps of the digital edition is that I didn't have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and I guess it does make sense that it, you know, getting the Azrael that like that's where the the final confrontation for that arc is ultimately gonna have to be. Yeah, that that sold me well. I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. It's a good you know for how kind of busy and uh the mall stuff is like that, there's sort of a a nice simplicity to that confrontation between death and Azrael, you know. And that death kind of earned earned his place, earned his role. And we, we, yeah, I like that. You know, there's, as yeah, say, there's, there's contrasted well. I, I agree, um, but also a little bit disagree because there's quite a lot of moving parts mm. around the death stuff that all work, and are all. In fact, the death stuff is probably a a cue to how the shopping mall stuff should be done. You think of the three scripty of the death of rats, yeah. who is the the legal loophole of a sort. 
Um, yes. You get the, Indeed, the yes. references to the clock. The, the fact you've got Bildor and Death at the same time as two different beings. There's, yeah, there, yeah, there's so many little add-ons to the Death storyline. You know, but even before we get to the townsfolk that are, are just perfect in their execution. Yeah, you're right. It's, much, it's more. It, it is more coherent in terms of all those little building blocks. They all they all fit together much better. I would agree with that actually. Yeah. Um. And then, so I, I want to, yeah, also talk about um, Bildor and Mrs. Flitworth, if it's it's time for that. Of course. Um, as uh, that section was just sheer beautiful poetry when Bill's saying his last goodbyes. It's it's funny. It's very, very touching. Um, there's a lot of it, and it's significantly different from the whole Indiana Jones of. <laughs> of gifting goodbye to the townsfolk the last da dance and then renata flitworth's reunion with her husband that's yeah i don't know how many pages that is but it's all it's a lovely like almost like a short story but it it's, fits in perfectly of course like i think i warmed to mrs flitworth as the pacing dictated it you know i think it was terry's intention you know that as the relationship develops between bill and Mrs. Flitworth, you know, the readers invited into that sort of at the similar pace. So by the time you reach this big emotional crescendo, like it's so well executed that you, as you say, you know, you're, you're completely satisfied by it, even though it could, if it, if it wasn't handled just quite right, you know, all the, the, the flowers and the massive diamond and all like that, that could take you out of it because it's a bit, it's so silly, but it doesn't, it, it feels totally right for their relationship you know they this kind of uneasy eccentric relationship that they've developed throughout the story where she kind of knows who he is but she pretends that she doesn't and this is like this the perfect ending to it it's great yeah it, it, absolutely that whole arc makes the book worthwhile and it's it's the book's reaper man it's about death this is his arc within it so like that alone is worth the price of admission for me mm -hmm. Wendell Poons gets good closure too. I will miss yeah. him. I knew him. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. And, and actually a hero, I think, by the end of the story. Yeah, to totally. And it's it's nice to see a slightly more well-rounded wizard character, maybe, you know, in, in comparison to, say, Rincewind or whatever, who's not quite even though he's like a friggin' zombie or whatever, like he's he's not yeah. as heightened, like in terms of his personality and there's more kind of introspection and there's more pathos within him and stuff. So like, but yeah, by the time we lose him, we, we, we've lost a friend, I guess, you know. And this is another um, another monster subversion where the, the, where the wolf that turns into a man, you've got the, the zombie that gets, has a new lease of life as a result of being zombified. His... His thoughts are quicker. His mobility is in place. Good point. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he, he sees things coming to get. He's got a new appreciation for yeah. um stuff. I totally, yeah, I totally failed to articulate that point earlier. But there is <laughs> something really funny in the idea that like Wendell was so old and like so deteriorated that becoming a zombie was like a step up for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good gag. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I really, I want more Wendell. I I really do, but 
um just gotta let them go it's a shame but i think yeah you know because we, we the punch was pulled with with gas boat as you mentioned at the start but the way that this when those stories constructed i mean obviously it had to end this way and like you say we knew it was coming but it's handled it really well so it's it's it's, it's a good moment of catharsis i think yeah we get we get a lot of there's some really interesting points where he's he's contrasted with the you know against the other wizards who you know decide at one point they're gonna kill him um it, it cuts quite a, a vulnerable and sympathetic figure in that yeah he's although you know the the academics come back to fight for him and to get his back there's very much a sense that he's operating outside of that he's operating as a loner um with some abandonment yeah um, for sure and i guess we've, we've just, kind of seen that that fish out of water at school stuff or at the university with with ask in the past and i've been reading i've been reading the biography um terry's biography recently and there, there does seem to be a sense that he didn't feel like he fit in particularly well at school so it's it sort of feel it feels like that might be, be the origin behind some of these university stories where they're you know you have like you said a fish out of water within that academic setting so i think it it's been interesting to kind of get that insight wendell's exit where he is um it's a reprise of his conversation with sergeant cohen um i think just helps uh i'm stood over ankmore pork's bridge with its its mud below um yeah. less water and it, it helps sort of earth and ashes dashes i guess that you know connection to the, the ordinary of ankmore pork mm, and its yeah. terrible smell yeah any I've, I've mentioned it before any any gag about the river uh anytime that gets worked in especially if it gets worked into a big story beat like that uh, i love it so do you have a favorite quote or bright spot uh yeah well i've got a favorite quote uh and again it's sort of fitting in the theme of me catching up on stuff about discworld that i thought i knew but apparently didn't because i hadn't read this book or hadn't read it properly my favorite quote is light thinks it travels faster than anything, but it is wrong. No matter how fast light travels, it finds the darkness has always got there first and is waiting for it, which is a, it's a good line. It's very Pratchett. Uh, it's one that I had heard before, but I obviously hadn't placed it in the right context because I didn't, hadn't read this book. So yeah, so to keep in that theme of, of me kind of filling in those gaps, death of rats, auditors rage all that stuff yeah finding the right place for that quote was also quite a cool revelation as well Hold on. mine was um pretty much the minute i read it i decided it was say a clear victor and i'm sure a lot of people have it as a favorite it was later that the story of wendell poons really came to an end his story means all that he did and caused and set in motion in aramtop's village where they dance a real morris dance for example, they believe that no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away, until the clock he wound up winds down, until the wine she made has finished its ferment, until the crop they planted is harvested. The span of someone's life, they say, is only the core of their actual existence. 
good one. Yeah, and it's, it's such a core Discworld idea without getting into it, you know. But we use the we use the handle on on Twitter and stuff, you know, um, Discworld GNU and the the GNU thing, which comes up in a later book, is a really concise summary, basically, of of, of what you've just said. It's a really good motif for that, and it's uh, I think it's one of the strongest kind of re- recurring motifs in the whole series. So there you go again to, to sort of see it articulated so well for the first time in this book is has been well worth me kind of going back and, and, and reading it for the first time properly. So nice one. All right. Before we push on, we've got some uh, mail from our friend Roasty Buns. Okay. Um, so how do you deal with getting into a franchise with so much material? I sometimes find it amazingly overwhelming. I listen to albums, work, read books, play games, movies, and all that stuff. So I find it extremely hard to stick with the franchise. He talks about time and um, stuff. It's it's too daunting to even start, especially at the beginning. Um, it's a very commercial sort of question, I feel. Um, yeah, there's a couple of levels to my answer. I think if we're dealing with big productions and they're terrible, I just, I drop them. I don't have time to waste on waiting for a series to, you know, get better in the second or third season. I've learned to sort of put my mind in a place where I just ignore the, the to be continued of things. Um, I, I just have to disconnect. Maybe it's a punk mindset. Maybe I'm a creative snob. Who knows? And then we've also got, you know, in the last 30 years, we've got gone from like here in the UK, like three channels to. Um, I mean, 30 years ago, we had, four, we had four channels. <laughs> Maybe this was before your time, Pete. Yeah, well, the, yeah, it is. But like, I'm I'm nearly 40. So <laughs> So I, I think there's, there's a problem there. It's too daunting to you know, keep abreast of everything that's going on. There's also, you know, more than any time in the past, there's better television, there's better fiction. So you really just have to be a bit mercenary. You can't afford even all the all the best, all the great stuff. You don't have the time to get through it. Heck, my, there's a number of classics sitting on my bookshelves that should have been the first order of business, really. I think just sort of accepting that fact and just just coping with it. I'm not getting wedded to a franchise, but rather to the creative voices within that. Yeah, um, that's good advice for sure. And I think if you're talking about like TV shows, comics and stuff, uh, where you have multiple creators and that, you can be a bit choosier. I have, I've struggled in the past big time with being a bit of a completionist of like, you know, if I'm going to read say like a big comic crossover event if i'm going to like your civil wars or what have you you like you gotta read every issue of like every character you know and it's just like like roasty says it's overwhelming and a, a series i'm trying to kind of work my way through at the moment is is the horus heresy series of, of warhammer 40k books which is just like they just took the piss massively started with a trilogy of books to tell the story um now they're they're like 50 plus books in the series all these different writers and stuff uh and in the past i would have been kind of incapable of skipping a book in a series like just it would have made my brain itchy but 
with with horse heresy i'm just like nah i can't and obviously the internet and the communities are great for people telling you like what the must reads are and you know if you like this read that without having to go through every single entry in a series so no i, I totally um i totally relate to that sort of sense of overwhelming but I've just finally reached a point, as Andy says, where there's too much content and mm. not enough time. And I'm just trying to be a bit cheesier, not feeling that I have to be a completionist anymore. And who knows, you know, maybe I'll come back and fill in the gaps in that series in 20 years, like I'm doing now with Discworld. <laughs> I among, don't think I'd have... Yeah, among, among the writers, fiction writers I talk with, everybody wants to do a series of books, a series of books. And like, I'm not... You know, I don't have time to read your six books. You write <laughs> one, write one book that's self-contained. Yeah. And if I'm really as into it as you think I am, then yeah, I'll 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 do I'll do number two or but I don't want to be given number one and told to be continued, you Oof. know. Yeah, because then it it almost You've got to be really confident for that stuff. Yeah. yeah big time and i mean and we're all sitting here waiting for the winds of winter still and it's like it Ten does the fact, that, yeah. the fact that that if it ever comes out and that is a big if if it does the fact that he may not stick the landing he might not mess it up as badly as the tv writers did but he may not stick the landing does make that previous seven book investment feel like sort of a waste of time doesn't it you know mm, yeah so yeah i get it that's it, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what else to say about that, but it's a good question. Something I was really, really apt, something I'd just been thinking about a lot. I Literally last week was like, right, I have to start skipping books in this series. I can't read all these books. So yeah, that question came up at a really interesting time for me. Interesting. Um, so anything to plug, PJ? Not that I can talk about at the moment, unfortunately. Um, hopefully yeah, hopefully soon. Um, I have started a new novel on my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Andy Luke. Um, it's a comedy thriller spy thing. Uh, it's great fun. Um, it's called Half-Baked Alaska. It's a great um, title. It's an absolutely fantastic title. I want to say special thanks to a few of my top patrons, um, Arslan, Hyder Ali, Art K, and particularly Ian Lawther, who... Um, also goes havers on the Zoom bill, which allows PJ and I to do this. So big thanks to Ian. Um, thanks, Ian. We should be thanking more often you, the man. Indeed. Um, where to find us? Our main hosting page is anchor.fm. Well, it's now called Spotify for podcaster.com, but that's not as catchy. You can still use the old anchor.fm. Uh, for slash I've never read Discworld. As PJ mentioned, we're at Discworld GNU on Twitter and Facebook. But just now X before you know everything's changing names. The world is leaving us behind. X we're X.com forward slash Discworld GNU. Uh, Awful we, terrible stuff. We are back the way Coca Cola. We, we are the heroin. Or is it cocaine? <laughs> yeah, we have the cocaine. <laughs> Poor cocaine no stuff. We are note. original Coca-Cola. <laughs> we have the cocaine. Uh, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So sum it up for us. Do the thing. I have read Discworld. 
It's been uh, so long. It's boy, been so long we've forgotten how to Discworld. It's been so long we forgot how to end the podcast. I had never read this Discworld. Now I have. On to the next one. Should we do that or are we what is the I, next I one? I think the next one is Witches Abroad. Ooh. Back to the witches. Always Yeah, so the witches are you kind of I kind of know that it's gonna be good. Yeah. Um, I I feel I might be in similar territory here with some of these early series Burks where like I've maybe got equal rights and witches abroad mixed up in the past. So now that I know I made that mistake with Reberman, this is gonna be interesting. I I'm not hundred percent sure whether I've read this or not. It sounds so, to me very much like the witches go on holiday. That does sound Over familiar, holiday, actually. which could be fun. Yeah. Bus, well we'll see. Trips, egg and crest sandwiches. <laughs> sounds great. Granny be all over that stuff. Cool. All right. Looking forward to that. All right. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, please spread the word and we'll see you next month. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.